Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. The pervasiveness of hookup culture, ubiquity of locker room banter, accessibility of internet porn, media steeped with distorted images, and wide acceptance of the man box or bro culture participation is having complex and negative effects on our boys. And as pornography has become a new kind of sex education that most boys are privy to by the tender age of 11, and sexual assault showing itself as a more commonplace occurrence, It's time for a change. As squeamish as it may make us, we've got to get talking to boys about sex, about consent, about empathy, porn, intimacy, media, misogyny, arousal, LGBTQ, connection. This, as you all know by now, is not just about one talk, but a series of little and big discussions along the way. It is not just for moms. It's not just for dads. This is about all of us. When we unravel the hidden truths and put high beams on the realities of young male sexuality and culture in today's world, we create a provocative paradigm shift that can help us move forward to raising more informed boys and better men. Peggy Orenstein is the New York Times bestselling author of Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Waiting for Daisy, Flux, and Schoolgirls. A contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, she has been published in USA Today, Parenting, Salon, The New Yorker, and other publications, and has contributed commentary to NPR's All Things Considered. Her new book has come out to glowing reviews and is called Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. She lives in Northern California with her husband and daughter. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. So welcome, Peggy Orenstein, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thanks so much, Robin. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you on. This is a really important topic. But before we get into all of the information for those who haven't seen your book yet and haven't heard you speak. Can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you <laughs> so interested in learning and talking about boys and how they regard sex and intimacy and consent and, and all that when you've been researching girls for so long? I know. That's the big secret. I had no interest in writing about boys. I had no expectation of writing about boys. I've been writing about girls for 25 years. Um, But after Girls and Sex came out, everywhere I went with the book, people, you know, parents and girls and boys themselves said, when are you going to write about boys? Mm. And I thought, well, you know, that's somebody else's job. But sort of the more I thought about it and realized, first of all, I'd been in that world of young people already for years um, in that sexual world and that social world of, you know, of how they were navigating these ideas. And secondly, nobody was talking to boys or listening to boys about any of these issues. And so then I started doing some interviews and thinking about it. And, uh, suddenly the Me Too allegations came out and there became a mandate to reduce sexual violence. But to me, it provided this really exciting opportunity to engage boys and young men in really deep conversation about sex, about intimacy, about masculinity, about gender, because we really need to know what's going on in their heads in order to help them make the best choices. Mm, So important. Now, you laughed when I asked you what gets you up in the morning, so now I need to know the answer to that. (laughs) The alarm. (laughs) (laughs) People are like, my dog, my children, coffee. No, you know, no, I was thinking that I, I, the reason I laughed actually was because 
I feel like I every time, you know, I keep thinking, maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should, you know, do a different topic entirely. Maybe, you know, intellectual curiosity. About, but I just feel this, um, I feel impelled uh, to keep going back to young people and gender issues and issues of personal relationships because, you know, they're so core to our well-being. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's such rich um so many rich things that we can learn about ourselves and our culture and how to, you know, help our kids be better humans mm. through that lens that I just keep coming back to it, coming back to it, coming back to it. You do it so well. This book is, you know, really well written. It has just so much good information. Anybody who's raising a boy, this book is so important to talk to them about sex. And in your book, you talk about jock culture and the man box. And you say, when I asked the boys to describe the ideal guy, those boys who were coming of age in the 2000s appeared to be channeling 1955. The definition of masculinity had barely budged. So can you tell us about toxic masculinity and how toxic masculinity is affecting our boys and sex in negative ways? Yeah. So I've, I kind of veer away from that term, I have to say. Mm. I, I, when I use it in the book, I usually put it in quotes. Yes, because, I saw that. I, I have it in quotes in my notes. but <laughs> Yeah. Um, because I prefer to say something, you know, that's a little, I, I think it's really a useful term in terms of exposing things in the larger culture. But when we're talking to boys, it, it, it creates a kind of defensiveness mm. that I don't think is that useful. And so I prefer to say either, um, precarious masculinity or hazardous masculinity or something that um, is less or fragile masculinity, something that that feels less um, like an attack on them. Um, Just I just think it's more they can hear it better. And if the goal is understanding and change, then let's do what will create that. So um, yeah, you know, talking to God, on one hand, it was, it, it was an interesting contradiction and probably not surprising because I saw so many contradictions in girls' lives between new expectations and old assumptions that probably we shouldn't be so surprised that boys embody those as well. So on one hand, things had changed tremendously and girls had, boys had, um, female friends, they had gay male friends, they, uh, saw girls as deserving of their place in the classroom or on lead- in leadership or professional educational opportunities, all that for sure. Um, but they also, like you said, when I asked them what the ideal guy was, they went to, um, you know, athletic, mm-hmm. dominant. There was a weird, weird combination of aggressive and chill that had come up. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit new, sort of a weird contradiction. Um, uh, sex is status seeking, sex is conquest. Um, and the big one was emotional suppression. And so much of that, of those sort of things that we're grappling with about the way um, guys can be socialized into our world have to do with that emotional suppression piece. So I really made that front and center at the beginning of the book, boys talking about things about how they learn to put up a wall, um, they would say, or, or how they train themselves not to feel or mm. learned not to cry, um, how they could only, were only allowed happiness, anger, and and really so much I felt especially actually in talking about the book since it's come out, um, because sometimes you learn things about your work after it's out in the Mm -hmm. world, you know? Um, And and I feel that what's really at the heart of this book and what radiates outward into every chapter, whether it's about porn, whether it's about masculinity, whether it's about hookup culture, whether it's about um, guys, you know, skirting the edge of assault, um, it's about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And it's about the ways that guys feel this taboo against vulnerability, wrestle with it, deny it, deflect it, embrace it, capitulate to it. Um, because, you know, when we cut boys off from their capacity for vulnerability and empathy and all of those things, you know, compassion, not only are those basic human traits, but Brene Brown says that vulnerability is the secret sauce to holding relationships together. Mm -hmm. And so when we reduce that in young men, we cut off their capacity to have the very kinds of relationships, mutually gratifying, personally fulfilling relationships that we want our boys to be able to have. And that harms them and that harms their romantic partners as well. 
I think it's so important to keep that in mind, that very thing that you just said, when we are feeling really squeamish about talking to boys about these topics or feeling like they might not listen or, you know, just feeling like it might be somebody else's job, just keeping that in mind that when we don't talk about it, these are the messages that they're getting uh, from others. They're getting it, you know, from society. They may be getting it from family members, friends, peers, whatever they're getting it from. And, and we need to be a voice. And one of the areas that really challenges people is porn, as you mentioned before. We, yeah. we, we spoke to uh, we spoke to Gail Dines about porn and uh, from cultures reframed and and even so while reading the chapter on porn in your book I, I was just as disturbed as as when I spoke with her so many areas stuck out for me the accessibility how kids are exposed to it at an early age the way they wind up seeing it uh, for the first time how it distorts their perception of sex and even their performance and connection to their own bodies not even another person but their own bodies feeling disconnected and I was struck by a story that you told about a boy named Mason who was using porn as normally as eating or brushing his teeth. I think you mentioned in in the book yeah. and sneezing, like he sneezing, yeah, like and, and like in the back seat of the car when his mom was talking yeah. to his brother in front of it's just disturbing. I even told my my husband about that one. He's like, Ooh. his father discovers him watching porn and and has this moment. Well, you shouldn't be watching that; it's bad for you. And the boy turns to his father and's like, you know, you should really talk when it's on your computer too. And basically that just ended the discussion. Like they had this opportunity to have this discussion. The father turned on the TV and watched something and then that was it. Like there was no discussion. And the boy was like telling you this would have been a really good time to have a discussion. And and really was showing that he wanted to have that kind of discussion because he was lost in this. I mean, he he was having a, a lot of struggle and felt alone in it. So what do you want us to really know about boys and porn and what do you want us to do when before they see it like maybe the kid is nine or ten like you know before they they have an opportunity maybe to see it and what do you want us to do in that moment when we've discovered that they have seen it Right. And, and by the way, we need to talk to girls about this, too. It's not agreed. Only boys. Agreed. Um, I'm only limiting right. it because of the topic. Yeah, of I, w- the yeah I just want to put that out there. Good just point, so though. Thank you. I just was was talking to somebody whose 12 year old daughter and their friends were tr- were trading really um, explicit, violent porn oh, memes on a text God. and sending them to people who whether they wanted them or not you know so non-consensual and and ultimately that makes me just so sad you know just so sad that that's their first contact with human sexuality it is such a bummer and of all the things that any boy said to me mason yeah i mean his his statement that my dad failed me at that moment was profound but also this boy who said to me you know i feel like for our generation that whole process of Mm -hmm. you know going into a sexual experience and just, and exploring yes. sex without any preconceived notions mm-hmm. has just been, I'll, I'll do the G-rated version, just been destroyed yes. by, by porn. I mean, yes. that is depressing. Right, um, like spoke for them and tr- and t- and educated them falsely. their imagination. Yeah. yeah. Right, so, right, that kid yeah, said, so, I mean, that kid said you could, uh, that, that kid who was like a god in his school and they were like, yeah, he says he's not using porn at all. He just imagines well, what, what and, and, and it works for him. How does he yeah, do that? imagination and they're like, whoa, how does that work? They couldn't yeah. even imagine that. Yeah. yeah, I know, that's depressing too. Um, so, but, yeah, I think it's really, it's, it's, um, I always want to frame the porn conversation as saying, you know, obviously curiosity about sex is, is mm-hmm. natural, uh, and masturbation, you know, yay, super important for boys, girls, everybody beyond in between those categories, whatever. Um, what has changed is that in 2007, Pornhub dropped the paywall on porn. So that made it not only, you know, the internet, not only your smartphone, but it allowed everything that you can imagine and a lot of things you don't want to imagine to be accessible um, anonymously and free. Mm. So that is what's different. Um, 
And and I was really I really like with boys would say things like explain to me exactly how you masturbate with porn. Like, how does it work? You know, what are you doing? Um, so things, you know, understanding that what what they will do is go through all the free, you know, the free sites. And if parents haven't looked at those sites, particularly mothers, a lot of times haven't. They, they need to, because if you have some like 1970s idea of porn in your head, you are totally wrong. Mm. And, and just like go look at the front page of something like porn tub or you porn or something. Um, and actually, a friend, you know, somebody said to me recently, if, if it's you or you porn, which of you is going to educate your child about sex? I Vital. think it's a really good yes. Sign. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but, uh, you know, so, so they will like pull up, you know, eight clips or something, toggle back and forth quickly among them with a death grip on the penis and, you know, until until they find the thing. I mean, it's, it's and, and we don't really know what the impact of that is on young people. But we do know that what they're seeing over and over. Um, and, and, and I want to talk about mainstream media, too, if we can, because yes, I think that course. we get lost a little bit in the boring conversation. But um, is is this image of sex as something men do to women, mm-hmm. um, female, you know, female pleasure as a performance um for male satisfaction, uh, a lot of eroticized violence and humiliation, even on a very low level, um, and a lot of acts that, you know, frankly, wouldn't feel very good to most people, and especially to most women. And absent any discussion from trusted adults, that's their sex educator now. Mm. And, you know, they would, they would say a lot of different things about it. Some of the guys that I talked to said they were kind of done with it. Like, you know, there was a small group, they said they couldn't justify their you know, their egalitarian attitudes with porn or one guy said to me, I'm just going to go there with this, if that's okay, that Mm, um, he was sitting in a classroom idly looking at a girl next to him and thinking about what she'd look like with cum on her face Mm -hmm. was what he said, Mm -hmm. not what it would be like to kiss her, not what she'd look like naked, you know, Mm. and he just, it startled him so much that Mm. he thought I got to stop, you know, kind (sighs) of like almost like had too much, been drinking too much. Right. Hit, hit rock bottom. Right. And but some most of the guys and some guys felt like Mason, like they've been very much harmed. And I can't say whether that was true or whether that was something about them or what. But what was true was that they had never talked to anybody, any adult but me about it. Mm -hmm. That was true. So there was nobody to help them work that through. Mm -hmm. The majority of the guys said, I know the difference between fantasy and reality. And that is what you're going to get from your son. I know the difference between fantasy and reality. But really? Really? How? How? Good. You haven't even had any real experience. You haven't even kissed anybody, (sighs) you know, really. And also, you know, what we know about media is that it affects our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, actions, even when we think it doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why the Russians use the media to undermine our democracy, Mm -hmm. because it works, because media has an impact on how we behave. And it turns out that guys who watch College guys who watch um, more porn are more likely to think that its images are real, more likely to want to act out its more aggressive acts in the bedroom. They are less satisfied with their partnered interactions, which I think is interesting for boys to know, less satisfied with their own performance, less satisfied with their partner's bodies. And what I think you see in that chapter in Boys and Sex is boys really wrestling with all of this. You know, some of them are like, no big deal, whatever. You know, yeah, I use it every day. I don't care. But a lot of them are wondering, really wondering, you know, what it means. A lot of them are struggling, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways, with trying to figure out if it's having an impact on their personal relationships. A lot of them felt it did. It didn't mean they weren't going to do it, but they felt like it affected how they, you know, their shame around their genital size. It, mm-hmm. is, it affected um, who they were attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It affected what... You know, it certainly was affecting what they believed ought to happen in the sexual interaction. And as one guy said, the feedback you're going to get from from women Mm -hmm. and what they thought female pleasure was, it certainly affected all of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at at best, it was something they had to get over when they got into a partnered interaction. Mm -hmm. And it it was, you know, it, it just what we don't have the luxury. We don't have the luxury of remaining silent about this. And I know You'd rather poke yourself in the eye with a fork than talk to your son about porn or your daughter. Um, but we can't not do it. And and mainstream media, too. You know, I, like I said, we get sort of, you know, the, the porn is new. So we're very concerned about that, and rightly so. But the fact is that our kids are bombarded by mainstream media a bajillion hours a day. 
And that too is another place where it's being, where, you know, it's being reinforced. Sex is something, you know, male sexual entitlement, female sexual availability, male sexual dominance, female sexual submission. And what, can I swear? Yes. Okay. Um, I always like to ask. Uh, but, you know, one boy said to me, we were talking about all this, and he said, but, you know, I think just music, the music we listen to has a big impact on how guys treat girls. You're driving around with your friends in the car all day, and you're hearing some version of fuck that bitch and quitter mm-hmm. four, ten, fifteen times in two hours. Yeah. You know, and it feels really subtle, effect. right? Like it's, it's, it's there on the on in the background while you're in the car, but right. You know, and it's also mixed in with something that is incredibly imaginative, yeah. incredibly compelling, um, has all these fantastic, you know, musical qualities mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, is Sticks art in, the brain. in so many ways, mm-hmm. but is also so you can say, but it's it's got all this, so I'll just ignore that. Well, that's not true, mm-hmm. and that other stuff is still there, and of course you're not ignoring it. So if we're not, you know, have, and, and I think that this is one area, Robin, where we have done such better work with our girls. Yeah. And, and that where we could actually, you know, parents of boys can learn something from what parents of girls have learned or, or what they themselves have learned as parents of girls, which is that, you know, I, like I said, I've been writing about girls for 25 years and we have done so much work on recognizing the harm that media messages inflict on our daughters. We know that, right? Everybody knows that. And we work from the time they are tiny to create a counter-narrative for them so that they will be armed, at the very least, with a critical lens that we hope, it's not perfect, it doesn't always work, but that we hope will help them resist those, you know, crass, objectified, commodified, harmful media messages. And we say nothing to our boys. Nothing. And they are growing up in the same stew. And if anything, it's turned up higher. Mm -hmm. And we think that magically they're going to come through that just fine with no problem. Or they'll learn. They'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. It's unrealistic. It's doing them a service. Agreed. And and just really important points about the need to open up that discussion. So let's put ourselves then in Wyatt's house and what would you want to whisper in Wyatt's dad's ear when he sits down on that couch oh wait you mean Mason oh Mason Mason. oh excuse me Mason Wyatt is the feminist fuck yes yeah 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 yeah. we'll get to him next (laughs) okay yeah excuse me all right so if we're to to put ourselves in Mason's house and we are able to whisper something in Mason's dad's ear when he sits down on the couch after catching his son watching porn and has just said, it's not good for you, and then is about to turn on the television. What are you whispering in his dad's ear at that moment? You have to stop here and talk about what's real and what's not real in in porn, that this is giving a skewed idea of um, what, human sexuality is of what people want and do and relate point out that there's what's missing in you know point you have to point out the way that it treats women and that it's completely inaccurate um about the what women want respond to uh most women um want respond to like uh that it doesn't show um any sense of connection sensuality messiness playfulness passion you know, that this is this is an abstracted idea of what sex is. There's, and what I would really do is also have gathered some information at that point um, that, that we need to gather early on. And there's some, there's some information on my website, which is PeggyRinsky.com. Um, especially for high schoolers, there's a, a, an essay from Scarlet Team, mm-hmm. um, which is a great resource for, for parents and teens for, um, <clears throat> excuse me, positive, pleasurable, sex education, but that essay really talks about um, porn from a number of perspectives, and I recommend that parents read it, and I recommend that they give it to their 14 or Mm -hmm. 15-year-old, because it talks about not only what's real and what's not real in porn, but also why does the fantasy in porn hew towards the more aggressive Mm. towards women? Why, you know, what about the fat shaming? What about the racism in porn? What about all these different things? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it addresses some of those issues in ways that I think are, are thoughtful and that boys can hear. I think it's really important not to shame our boys mm-hmm. or our girls around porn. Um, 
I hope that this chapter would be something that boys could read themselves and, and, and wrote it to that end because it does lay out a lot of the research, not only on, um, in, a, in a very neutral way, not only on the impact of porn um, in, in some of the ways you've discussed, but also things like, I really wanted to put some physiology in there so mm-hmm. that boys could understand, for instance, the difference between what is super arousing and what is actually wanted desired or pleasurable Mm. um because some of the more extreme images uh that they might see um might provoke a genital response right it might give you an erection that doesn't necessarily mean you want it Mm. and in fact what i talk about emily nagoski's work and how um it turns out that when something is simultaneously uh sexual in some way and objectionable it can turbocharge arousal um, and, and, you know, sort of create a sort of more arousing situation than something that you actually want. Mm. And so understanding that that's just the body being the body, it doesn't necessarily mean this is what I want in my heart and my brain mm-hmm. can maybe help you kind of go, oh, yeah, I don't really want to condition myself to these images, mm-hmm. you know, or I don't, you know, this or, or not feel so much. They would feel fear and anxiety over some of the things that arouse them or, or appear to arouse them. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding some of that, I think, is super helpful. Um, and Mason, I think the end of his story is is so interesting because what he finally, you know, he tells me this whole story about his porn use, which is, which is on the more extreme end. Mm-hmm. And then I said to him, when did you have intercourse for the first time? And he kind of screws up his face like he's trying to remember and he plays with this hat he's wearing and, you know, he sort of goes, huh, mm. and then he says, Friday. Yes, right. <laughs> Friday. Wait, and I what? Go, Wait, what? Because <laughs> it's Tuesday. Yes. <laughs> and then, like five days ago? And he tells me a story about how he met this girl and at a party and they tried to hook up and it didn't work. And they tried to hook up again the next night and it didn't work. And the third time they try to hook up, she says, did you ever do this before? And he admits he hasn't. And she says, what did you want your first time to be like? And that starts this conversation. I mean, what an open-ended question, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they have this whole conversation. And I mean, it's not like they are, you know, hugely connected and know each other super well, even so, but at least they have this conversation for a couple hours about what they wanted, you know, what they know, what, how they feel, you know, his anxiety around some of this stuff, all these issues. They have a, a connected conversation. And he said, and magically, it worked <laughs> after that. Mm-hmm. You know, right. You laugh like, Duh, right, 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 right. You're and like, oh, said, you finally I, felt connected. <laughs> right. And he said, what I realized was I can't be um, physically vulnerable with a person unless I'm emotionally vulnerable mm-hmm. first because the body is a vulnerable thing. <sighs> and you can't learn that from a screen. Recognizing that, you you know, b- kids would say to me and still say to me all the time, one of the questions I get most often when I talk to young people is, can you have sex without feelings? Because they're, that's presented to them as an ideal. Right. Hot sex with a cold heart. And I mean... You know, you could argue, well, no, because even indifference is a feeling. But I would always say, why do you want that? Why do you think that's the ideal? And that whole notion of that kids that I talk about in both boys and sex and girls and sex of catching feelings like it's a disease, you know, like Mm -hmm. like you don't want to catch gonorrhea. You don't want to catch syphilis. Mm -hmm. You don't want to catch feeling, you know, like why is that? And and again, that's this sort of um, idea that I think both boys and girls have developed, but that fits better with our with the way boys are socialized mm-hmm. um of sex as status status seeking um sex as partners as disposable yes. and a lot of the guys most of the guys that i met they were wrestling with that that was that didn't they, although that was the you know what they were supposed to be being socialized into it didn't really fit with who they were and that was that was really the the hookup culture that you yeah. discussed that that it feels quite different from when when I was growing up anyway. I mean, it was all about boyfriends, girlfriends, and, you know, who are you going out with? And somehow I feel like somewhere along the line, it it changed over to this hookup culture where it was less about who you're going out with and who you're hanging out with. It, and it did seem in your book, especially talk about 
feelings of emptiness and shame and negative feelings related to this hookup culture. Can you can you sort of paint it and uh, uh, this hookup culture for us and advise us on how to help kids like that boy in in your book Wyatt who yeah. who is moving from that feeling of being a boy toy to someone who wants to invest in connection and intimacy. Right. How do we how do we move that along when the yeah. hookup culture seems so pervasive? Yeah, it is pervasive. And I, I just before we move to that, I just wanted to give one more one more oh, plug for one more research for parents in the porn talk. Yes, um, for parents of younger kids, there's a fantastic site i don't know if you know it or have talked about it before but called amaze.org yes, right yes yeah. it's great amaze.org has great resources and they have a wonderful little video about porn for younger kids for like middle school mm-hmm. you know fifth sixth seventh eighth graders that um i highly recommend and mm-hmm. that will be of real use to parents anyway so back to the hookup culture um so hook the difference between uh, you know casual sex has always been around mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. to a degree um but what hookup culture is, is the idea that a hookup or a casual encounter um, precedes emotional intimacy rather than sex deriving from emotional intimacy. And that it's the normalized path to a relationship. So mm-hmm. a hookup is the first thing on the path to a relationship rather than being an exception. And even though most hookups won't lead to a relationship because the whole rule of hookups is to avoid catching feelings and to be less friendly afterwards than you were before. Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of the, you know, and and 90% of kids say that their college campus has a hookup culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's also really drifted down into high school social lives as well. So that's kind of the... um, the, the definition mm-hmm. of it and, and it very much prioritizes sex as status seeking and and it's not i mean it, it's presented to kids as fun um and, and it also obviously to get over that sort of um fear of the awkward mm-hmm. <laughs> um hookup cult and and i always I, I i've come to this idea that okay i said before catching feelings is like a disease it does oh, sound like that <laughs> Right. So if, if you want to protect against a, a, a disease in sex, like gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, whatever, you put on your condom, right? Mm-hmm. To protect against catching feelings, you have to put on your emotional condom. Mm. And your emotional condom is alcohol. Oh. So hookup culture is not just de- just lubricated by alcohol. Mm-hmm. That is an understatement. It is dependent. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to create, Lisa Wade, who wrote this great book, American Hookup, says it creates the compulsory carelessness necessary to engage in a hookup. Because, you know, mm-hmm. getting together with somebody that you don't know that well and don't really care about is, is kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to anesthetize yourself against feelings you need to anesthetize yourself against accountability alcohol will often become the reason for the hookup not like right you blame it on them right you blame it on yeah blame it on the alcohol not Mm -hmm. on actually liking the person being attracted to the person so and so what you know girls in that and girls in that culture did not would often i mean some of them wanted to be there and i talk about that in girls and sex Mm -hmm. but usually for both boys and girls um the majority are ambivalent and it tends to teach them more about what they don't want than what they do want. Mm-hmm. Um, and for and the girls tended to, when they didn't like it, express more of a sense of anger and betrayal. But the guys didn't really feel it served them very well either. Mm-hmm. And they would say things like one guy, and again, back to the vulnerability piece. Like mm-hmm. I said, I realized after how often that came up. But one boy said, it's like you're having two distinct experiences. There's not a lot of eye contact or communication. And, you know, it's like you're, acting vulnerable but you're not being vulnerable with someone you don't know very well or care very much about which is kind of odd and not really fun Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so it really what the hookup is about more than anything um is is a kind of validation and the story that you're going to tell your friends the next day Mm -hmm. because it sure isn't about good sex right i mean how could it be if you're kind of smashed and 
you don't know a person very well. How good mm-hmm. is that going right, to be? Right, right, right. You don't know them well and you feel awkward. And it sounded like there was a lot of shame involved, but the, you know, after and confu- it's almost like confusion and knowing, not knowing what just happened or where anybody stands. The talks and the conversations I would have with kids after, uh, they, they would always kind of befuddle me. You know, yeah. they, we would have, it's like I, I, I went to a, I went to a pregame party as, you know, as one does in middle age. Um, <laughs> all awkward. Uh, and uh, we, and after, and, and then the next day I, I got together with the kids again after they had gone off to their frat party. Um, and we were talking about all this and part of, you know, sometimes I just think, seriously, you're going to spend 20 minutes talking about how terrifying it is to send the morning after text. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Going, a text? Mm-hmm. I mean, a text. Mm-hmm. It's such a low bar, but mm-hmm. it was rot brought for them because they had no idea what the other person was thinking and if that person thought it was just a, you know a one-off at a party and then you're looking like you're needy and then you're looking like you care and you don't want to admit that do you use while you are you and you know all these things and I was just like oh my god that is way too much or or like you avert your eyes from mm-hmm. your partner from the night before when you this boy girls were always complaining about that like guys wouldn't would avert their eyes or ignore them in the cafeteria or whatever and one boy was just saying, well, because you don't know what she's thinking. And mm-hmm. maybe um, she's just thinking it was something that happened at a party. And mm-hmm. you don't want to be the idiot, again, to make yourself vulnerable um, and actually, like, say hello. Because then she's going to think, you know, you're a jerk or you're needy or, you know, it's embarrassing. You don't want to look weak. And so I said, so you would rather avert your eyes then take the tiny risk of saying hello to your partner from the night before Mm -hmm. because it might lead to the very you know which could possibly lead to the thing you say you want right and look at me and went yeah that's right yeah that's right so how do how does one then move this this these boys along from from being part of that hookup culture to to actually thinking, I want to invest in some kind of connection, uh, like you did. You talk about with Wyatt, and and yeah. get, have great sex and great relationships. How do we move that along when that's the culture? Well, again, I think that we have to break the silence because the truth is, is that um, hookup culture is vastly overestimated mm-hmm. by kids, mm-hmm. and there's a huge perception reality gap around it. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing with hookup culture, I mean, I think backing up three steps. We need to better educate them about positive sexuality, pleasurable sexuality, mm-hmm. reciprocal sexuality. Mm-hmm. Boys need way better education about female pleasure. Mm-hmm. Way better. Way better, education. yeah. Right. Um, you know, and that's not a small thing. That is a really major central thing that it, that is, you know, a problem right now. Hmm. Um, I mean, it probably always has been, but exacerbated by the culture that we live in. Um, so there's all that. But but I want I think that demythologizing hookup culture and letting them know what is real and not real about it, again, just like porn, mm-hmm. um, will help them have the tools to make their decisions around it. Mm-hmm. So I talk about in this chapter things like that 25 percent of kids on college campuses actually never hook up mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, only 10 to 15 percent um, hook up more than um 10 times Mm -hmm. the average number of partners is seven and what are those partners doing over the course of and that's over the course of four years Mm -hmm. what are those partners doing well they're not all having intercourse um 30 to 40 percent of college hookups include intercourse Mm -hmm. another 15 percent maybe include oral sex Mm -hmm. the rest are kissing and groping that Mm -hmm. is and the word hookup is so ambiguous Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean anything that it allows this incorrect estimation Mm -hmm. of what what your peers are doing and that can put pressure on people to feel uh, that they need to have sex they don't want or mm-hmm. that they need to be more coercive than they might otherwise be in order to keep up with peers or gain experience. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece. Mm-hmm. Understanding that, you know, what a hookup will and will not give you. It will give you, you know, a warm body, a war story, um, uh, an adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Not going to give you good sex. Mm-hmm. Not give you the tools you need to have good sex or create the emotional connection that you want. Know that going in. Mm-hmm. Understand that. Going in. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece. And I think also with boys, uh, I think that first part is true with everybody. But with boys, um, it also denies a fundamental capacity for love. Really denies it. Mm-hmm. And so 
when I was talking, when you've been referencing Wyatt, who called himself a feminist fuckboy, mm-hmm. which I loved, um, because he was scrupulous about consent, and he was egalitarian, he identified as a feminist, but he also um, treated partners as disposable, mm-hmm. and he also wasn't above using the fact that his college campus had a highly skewed ratio mm-hmm. of women to men, mm-hmm. and that allowed to call this the shots in the social culture. And so he was sort of thinking by the time I met him, he was not feeling good about that anymore. Right. He had been feeling good about it, but he wasn't anymore. And so we were having this conversation over the course of a year. And one day we were talking via Skype. He was back at school. And another boy that I was interviewing named Nate mm-hmm. texted me. And Nate also, mm-hmm. he'd had bad experience in hookup culture. He was uh, a boy who valued connection. Um, and he was looking at colleges where he'd been accepted and he texted me WT fu- WTF um, with hookup culture. It's it's like an orgy here. Mm-hmm. Do I go to phone town and worry about emotional connection later or mm-hmm. do I skip that part? You know, if in case you were wondering how they spoke to me. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they didn't censor themselves. No, they did not. And so rather than, you know, answering him mm-hmm. because not a therapist. Right. Um, right, right. I said, Wyatt. Yeah. What would you say to Nate? Here's what he's texting. Yeah, me. I loved that. Yeah. Up, it's it was such a I mean, it was total serendipity. Yeah. But amazing. They had this conversation through me about, you know, personal authenticity, about, you know, reality and myth around that script, around, you know, being the person about how doing something that isn't who you are will not serve you and will, you know, will kill your soul. And Nate texted me, you know, thank you. That was just what I needed to hear. And mm-hmm. he sent me a little heart emoji. And uh, and then, and I know because I stay in touch with him that that conversation helped him mm-hmm. when he finally did get to college, be the, the person that he wanted to be and in connection to other people. Mm-hmm. And I sat there thinking, they're strangers. They will never know each other. They don't even know each other's names. Mm-hmm. I'm a relative stranger to both of them, just mm-hmm. there because I have to be writing a book. What if we could create a situation? What if we could create space where boys could have these honest conversations mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. one another about what was real and what was false about that man po- box pose mm. and what they could do instead and open up a broader vision mm. of how they could conduct themselves and relate and be in this world and in our social lives? What, mm. How would that support in, in who they are and change who they can become. Oh, what a beautiful idea. I and mean, we, we're talking so much about parents and, and educators, you know, being there to talk to boys about this topic, but bringing in other other boys who may be further along or have a different perspective would be so useful. I, I could talk about this particular thing all day, but I have other questions that I like dying to ask you about, and I want to make sure that we have enough time. So I... I you know, I've already started my talking to my kids about sex. They're now nine and almost 11. So we've had these conversations, some of them. There is a, a conversation that I think is often left out when we're talking about sex. In fact, I mean, when people ask me about how to talk to kids about sex and what words do I use and that kind of thing, they're often talking about they're often talking about the mechanics. Uh, they're yeah. talking about reproduction, maybe. But the mechanics is a thing that often scares them. But I feel like one of the areas that is really left out and that makes people squirm in their chairs often is LGBTQ. I love that you covered yeah. it in your book. I think it is so important whether people uh, have, who knows what they think about LGBTQ. We've got people who have all different views, I'm sure, listening in. But it is part of the conversation. So what do you feel like we need to talk to our boys about when it comes to LGBTQ? And I will admit to you that while I was reading just the very first chapter before you even got into anything, I wrote, should we bring in the discussion of LGBTQ? This is before I got to the chapter on it. Um, mm-hmm. And what and sort of when do we do that? So what what has to be part of the conversation when you're talking about LGBTQ, not just to kids who are identifying that way, but for kids who may not be de- identifying that way, just right. all kids? 
Well, obviously, we have to start, you know, talk, the parents of kids who they know are LGBTQ um, have to get better educated. And I mean, I know it's hard enough to talk about sex with your right. heterosexual kid if you're heterosexual. We're talking about the fork this... in the eye, right? Like you're right. Yes, I get but it. But here is the thing with parents of those kids. You know, I think we obviously, again, you know, it's the contradictions. We live in a new day. We're much more accepting. Yes. We embrace our LGBTQ kids. Right. You know, there's gay marriage, it's legal, all of these things. And still, there's a lot of acceptance of the social identity yes. of being queer, but we're not talking to them about sex. We're not. And what I was right. finding right. with gay boys, particularly, was that they were going on grinder when they were underage. Oh. And their parents didn't know it, you know, obviously. Um, they weren't telling their friends. And they were going out and having anonymous hookups with much older men. And these, this and, is an app for those people who don't know. This is an app where it, it, they, they literally just show like a headless torso, right? Torso. Like essentially mm-hmm. of you of yourself, and then you you get to choose whether or not you want to have this hookup, and and it's it's it's, it's very much anonymous. Right. And and I mean, you think about your you know a sixteen year old. I was talking to one one boy who was telling me that. You know, he said, well, of course, you know, he, he would tell me about going to a hotel and having, you know, anonymous sex with an older guy. Um, and he said, I don't really like to go to a hotel because, you know, I prefer to go to their houses. I think that's safer. And I just looked at him and went, are you kidding me? Right. You know, you go to somebody. Nobody knows where you are. Mm-hmm. Right. Your parents don't know your friends. Don't know. In a house, somebody could chop you up in little pieces mm-hmm. and bury you in the backyard. You and know? they have there's no connection to this person. We don't even know who this is. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't even know the guy's name, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a hotel, at least somebody could hear you scream and you have to put down a credit card, you know, mm. the maid will come in, something will happen, you know, right. um, and, and he just looked at me and went, oh, hmm. I never thought of that, you know, because he's a kid. Oh, um, wow. So, and, and it wasn't ideal. It wasn't what they wanted. So we do need to talk to our, you know, and, and again, this is, put, this is that segment of it, to our LGBTQ plus kids mm-hmm. about what sex entails for them what you know a mutual connected reciprocal um experience entails for them um we have to give them resources about what sex between people who share the same genitals involves we have to know ourselves what that involves we can't shroud that in a kind of mystery over there um and i think part of the reason that it's hard for us is because it's not about reproduction and that you know when we're not talking about reproduction specifically, we get uncomfortable. Um, But that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, you know, the providing, um, thinking as as parents of of kids who identify that way, how can we create situations, provide situations, social situations for them where they can have age appropriate experiences of falling in love of, you know, hooking up in an age appropriate way, even, you know, even if it's not the way that we wish it was, you know, whatever, that they can do what their peers are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And they deserve to be able to do that. And they were, it was painful for them that they couldn't do that. And I know sometimes it's hard. Sometimes they're in an isolated situation, whatever. But it's important to have that conversation. It's important to think about how we can provide that. Because if we don't, they are going to go engage in unsafe behavior. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, really potentially dangerous behavior, not only in terms of STDs, but, um, you know, in terms of the dyna- the power dynamics in relationships. And a lot of the boys that have written to me, a lot of adult men that have written to me since the book came out have talked to me about how glad they were that I surfaced that because they felt really harmed mm-hmm. by it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need that- we need to get educated ourselves about yeah what the mechanics look like, what consent looks like. I love that in the book you you say like this is actually it's, it's when it comes to gay boys that they're they're really good about saying what are you into? Like they're much right. much better about it than other groups. They were a model, not, you know, that, not to say again that there weren't that there weren't all kinds of issues and potential assault and all that, but they provided a model mm-hmm. of how to how to na- navigate consent and negotiate a sexual experience because they kind of had to, you know, because Mm. it wasn't obvious what was going to happen and who was going to do what with whom and how. So they had to learn how to do that. And, um, and they were, you know, they thought it was great. They were like, I don't get the whole heterosexual resistance to this because if we're talking about consent, 
means we're going to have sex. Mm-hmm. You know, that's great. Mm-hmm. And Dan Savage talks about the four magic words, which you mentioned, what are you into? And mm-hmm. what I loved about that was, again, it's an open-ended question, as opposed to how we talk about consent in a heterosexual context, which is a set of questions that a boy asks a girl that are pre-prescribed that have a yes or no answer. Exactly. That's not the same thing. And that said, I also thought a lot um, about how, and I've thought about, again, since the book's been published, um, if you transposed that into a heterosexual context with, the, context with a young man and a young woman and said, what are you into? The girl might very well say, I have no earthly idea mm. because of the way we socialize girls mm-hmm. around sex. And that's one of the ways that girls and sex and boys and sex are in conversation with each other because you see re- with reading both of the books how that socialization, how the way we talk and don't talk about sex um, colludes to make it very hard for young people to communicate and to create the kind of sexual experience and relationship that they want to have and that we want them to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish we weren't coming to the end of the hour because I have so many more questions in my head, but I'm hoping we'll be able to do this again. Can you tell me, if you can finish the sentence, the most important things I want parents to talk to their boys about when it comes to sex are? Well, I think it starts before sex. I think we have to start by by helping our boys stay connected to their vulnerability, compassion, and empathy, and broadening their emotional range. Mm. That starts when our boys are very little, by naming emotions for them beyond anger, um, by saying things to them like, it seems like you're sad, um, it seems like you're frustrated. Uh, when they're angry, recognizing um, that there's often emotion under that anger that, that needs to be named, um, because boys lose that. They lose the capacity to name emotions. By the time they're adult men, they have a far reduced capacity compared to women mm. um, and the ability to recognize the emotions they feel in their bodies and they funnel it to anger. Um, and that, as we know, is a problem. Mm-hmm. So I would say starting there, mm-hmm. um, talking about consent for sure. And parents need to um, really, and I, and I lay out in the last chapter, a series of conversations that I think that parents yes. need to have. Um, but I do lay out the contemporary definition of consent because if you don't know it and if you're not crystal clear about it with your, you are putting him in danger of harming somebody and of having to face the consequences for that harm while not realizing that he has done so. Mm-hmm. I think we have gender dynamics super visible. And I talk about a lot of the gender dynamics that boys learn and girls learn that can get in the way of them per- you know, perceiving what's consensual and allow them to rationalize or stretch their definitions of consent past the boundaries of what is in fact consensual. Um, you know, I, I think that all of this, I'm trying to get across that it isn't the talk, isn't only about mechanics and it isn't only about intercourse. Um, and it's not even, you know, just about sex. Mm -hmm. We have to really have a, you know, a broad set of conversations, as we said, about media, Mm -hmm. uh, both mainstream and sexually explicit media. We have to promote the healthy and, you know, gotta say it, name the toxic. Um, to re- to help guys recognize what that man box is and how it can sabotage their well-being and their ability to have relationships. I mean, all of this is about the long game of wanting our young people to have the kinds of relationships that are mutually gratifying, that are personally fulfilling, and helping our young men um, become the boys that, the, the, the men that we know that they can be, to become their best selves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Echoing so much of, of what Richard Weisbord said to us also about consent, but also very much beyond consent and creating those yeah. caring relationships, those connected, caring relationships. And he's like, who cares about, you know, what, what the, the girl is this way or that way, or, you know, you had this conquest or you did, you know, you were able to achieve this. Nobody cares about that. What the end of the day, it's really about that connection 
connection, that caring relationship, what fulfills you, what gives you love, what when you can give love to somebody else. And that has to be part of the conversation. It can't just be the mechanics or even, yes, of course we need to be talking about consent, but it can't just be about consent, as you say in your book as well, because that doesn't make it, well, it makes what you say, it makes sex legal, but it doesn't necessarily make it good. And and I think that's really an important aspect that we need to bring in the talk. My first initial talk with my daughter when she was younger wound up lasting an hour. I mean, I stumbled a little bit through the mechanics when she was asking me about it. And it was surprisingly a short component of what we wound up talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and I just... I honestly was so grateful for that talk. I can't even begin to tell you, and I couldn't have orchestrated it. I mean, it just happened the way it did. But we did talk a lot about love and and tenderness. And and she, she asked me, and I remember this one question. She said, does it hurt? And I, I, you know, and I talked to her about when you're fully connected with somebody, when you love somebody, and you you feel just you know, just that you're in the right place at the right time with the right person, then it can be beautiful and feel wonderful. But if you're in a situation when you're with somebody who you don't care about, you don't feel connected to, you don't want to be there, then it can hurt very much, both physically and emotionally. And Mm -hmm. I'm just grateful that I was able to have that conversation with her. And I know that there's many more that I need to have. And, you know, as my son is is growing up too, and we're having more conversations with him, that these are conversations that we need to have so that we broaden this, the talk, to many, many talks that we have, because we're creating a multifaceted man. We're not, right. we're not just talking about this, this one thing. So can you give us your top tip? What do you want us to come away with from this talk that we're having today? You know, it's got to be start the conversation. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have and 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 I know it it can be hard. I know it can be hard because, you know, we weren't raised this way. Um, Maybe you can't talk to your partner very well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and especially for adult men, because it, you know, when adult men can speak with compassion and listen with compassion to their boys, it makes such a difference and have the and boys you know express such a desire to hear from fathers or whoever the adult role, male role model was in their life um not only about like you said not just about sex but about intimacy mm-hmm. and about their own regrets along the way about their own journey mm. and i know you know i know that's not natural for a lot of adult men right but what i want to say about that is you don't need to be perfect mm-hmm. you don't need to know the quest, you know, all the answers. You don't need to know all the questions. You can come back and say, you know, I really blew that. You can, you know, if you haven't had a, tr- a talk with your son and he's 16 or 20, you know, you can say, gosh, we never had these talks. Yes. That was wrong. Yes. I want to start having these talks. You just, you know, you, and again, you may not have the perfect relationship. You may not be able to talk that well to your partner, but you can make a difference here and just Enter the conversation where you can, mm-hmm. however you can. Just start it. I love that you talk about getting the men involved in the conversation, the dads in the conversations. I, I did have this one situation where I heard my son asking his dad uh, about about what sex was, and I tiptoed past that room. And I'm, you know, my I, my husband said to me late later, he was like, "Why didn't you come by? This is this was really challenging." I was like, "Because it was perfect. He was asking you about it, and that was the person he decided to ask about it, and so that was your conversation to have. And I'm happy to have conversations with him later, but it's great that you had that opportunity." And he said it really wasn't so bad, but I did hear from the room at one point. Ew! Yeah. And it's okay. It's okay to be, you know, you can even laugh about it. Like, oh, we're going to have one of those awkward conversations. But you can, you know, it gets easy. I mean, I was not, I got to say, I was not born being able to, you know, get onto a podcast and have a discussion about, you know, blowjobs. That is not who I was. This is not my bag either. It's not like I was born this way. You will learn. 
and and you learn and you learn by you know shouting the the other you know shouting at your child back as they are fleeing from the room yes. you know too much information okay yes, but you right. heard me right Ew. you know yeah we'll no, revisit no. this don't <laughs> think you know you or or you have the conversation in the car or whatever but you know it's it's once you start you can only you know exer- you got to exercise the muscle yes it's a weak muscle and it gets stronger and the earlier you start the better but that doesn't mean that you can't start later and you can also enlist you know others like if you have the mm-hmm. cool aunt the cool uncle the gay best friend, the, you know, the neighbor that your child is close to, you can task them with having some of these conversations or being the person that they can talk to as well. You know, if, for when they can't talk to a parent, you can, you know, you can enlist your community. That is um, a good idea. That is a good idea to be, and yeah. especially if you feel so uncomfortable that you're like, you know what, if they don't do it, it's not going to get done. So let's make sure we're enlisting help um, at the very least to make sure somebody in a trusted in a trusted position is, is having these conversations. I'll tell you my, I started even, I think this was even before I started writing. It was before I started writing girls. Like the other day I was, I was on a, I was on a um, call in NPR show and uh, my sister-in-law called in. (laughs) Oh gosh. How funny. I know. It was really funny. And she did because she wanted to say this. she wanted to say, sometimes it's not the parents. And even if you have a great relationship, even if you can have these conversations, you might need that other person. And she said that she had when, and this was true when Mm -hmm. her oldest was a teenager, she asked me if I would have these conversations with her daughter. And, um, and I remember going out to lunch with her daughter who had a significant boyfriend at the time Mm -hmm. and having this conversation with her and wanting to just, I wanted the earth to swallow me up. You know, I just was desperate. (laughs) I totally know that feeling. Yes. Because I was sitting there saying things like, so, you know, maybe you're thinking about intercourse, but maybe there's some questions you want to ask yourself first. Like, you know, have you had an orgasm with your partner um, on, in other ways? What, you know, if not, why do you want to be having intercourse? What is it that you think of as sex and sexual experience? What is the purpose and the, you know, what what are you communicating? You know, all these different questions mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, God, save me. Yes, um, save and she's me. And yes. like staring at me, you know, still as a mouse. But it was a really important conversation and, and it opened up doors um, for, in our relationship mm-hmm. so that over the years, she's now 28, I think. And, um, and, and true with my other nieces and nephews too, that they contact me with all kinds of questions what and discussions. You have, position. you know, not yes. only around sex and relationships, mm-hmm. but around career, around friendships, around whatever is going on in their lives. We text constantly. We talk a lot. We're very, very close. And I think I really honestly believe that that's because when they were younger, I showed up without fear and without judgment in their lives Mm. and that um that relationship so it's not just an opportunity it's not just awkward it is really an opportunity to start scaffolding a different kind of adult relationship with your child that is rich and that is close and so Mm -hmm. to keep that in mind too i think really helps when you're feeling that sense of dread because nobody ever talked to you and we have learned we're supposed to feel a sense of dread around these conversations. Mm. And that is an American thing, by the way. That is not universal. Mm. Wow. Yes. And, you know, coming with, coming to this conversation and all other conversations without fear and judgment, that is that is one of those messages that we really need to hit home. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and all the great work you're doing? My website is Peggy Ornstein got excuse me, PeggyOrnstein.com. There we go. Um, which has not only information about me and my books, but there are um, there's a page of uh, information in the resources section, a long page um, that will give you the tools for you to be able to build your own script and your own sex education class and your own relationship education class for depending on the gender. Um, the sexual orientation, the age, the stage of your child. So all of that is there. Oh, thank you so much, Peggy. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I love your insight. I love your strategies. I love your scripting. I love your help in all of these areas and just bringing them to light. I I love what you've been saying about just getting in there and having that conversation and that series of conversations, creating the relationship that allows for that kind of exchange and really 
that is the model for what we want our kids to have with other people in their lives. We want them to feel connected and fulfilled by their relationships. And this is just one avenue to make sure that they do. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. It was a great pleasure, Robin. Thank you. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com, twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. I will be going back and forth with Peggy Orenstein. She said so many things today that I'm going to make sure are on memes so that you can share them. I know how much you love that. And if you love this podcast like I did and you know how useful it was, would you kindly go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people will learn about Peggy Orenstein and all the great solutions and work that she is doing in this area so that they can use them in their own homes. I truly appreciate it. That's That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes to this podcast with her link will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. Perhaps you heard something today about talking to boys, about sex or intimacy or consent, and you thought, I haven't done this, or I messed up that conversation, or I shut that conversation down when I should have opened it up. Don't do that to yourself. This is not about bashing ourselves. This is about giving ourselves the opportunity to go back and say, I want to have the conversation now, or I messed up and I apologize and let's open this up again. This is that time. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversations. See you been listening to how to talk to kids about anything with dr robin silverman for more information on books articles speaking engagements or curriculum please visit drrobinsilverman.com